afternoon. I'm Sue O'Connell in for Callie Crossley. WGBH is focusing on poverty and homelessness among the elderly. Reporter Philip Martin has been looking at affordable housing options in the city. And we're going to continue that conversation with a look at the risk factors the elderly face when it comes to poverty and homelessness, particularly with so many of us living older and longer and uh, with more problems coming along. I'm joined by Professor Judith Gagne. She is the chair of social research at Boston University School of Social work. Judith Gagne, thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here, Susan. So let's talk um, a little bit about, uh, for the purposes of, of our discussion, what we're defining as elderly. It's it's not just folks uh, in their 70s, 80s, or 90s. That's right. When we look at the uh, federal poverty statistics, they do focus on those as 65 and older. And, um, however, when we talk specifically about homelessness amongst the older population, the age typically used is age 50 or older. The reason for that is because homeless individuals in their 50s often have the same chronic health problems that we see in much older adults. It's almost as if uh, you know you go back a few generations where today's 50 used to be yesterday's 70. But for folks who are living a much harder and more difficult lifestyle, that's a reality for them today. That's right. The harsh conditions of being on the street often accelerates the effects of aging. Now, the the challenge in front of us today is, is it is it just the sheer number of, of baby boomers who are, are entering uh, into the senior world, or is it, uh, and or is it the economic crisis that we're facing today? I think it's the intersection of both. You're right. There are the looming boomers. That is, baby boomers are now quickly entering the ranks of older adults. And even if the poverty rate did not, it didn't change, the sheer number of baby boomers aging means that there's going to be more older people living in poverty. But we know uh, that during the past decade, many middle-class individuals and families have felt themselves slipping down the economic ladder. So it's about both the growing numbers, but also the current economic conditions. And the, the double-edged sword of medical progress that we've made and, and cures and diagnosis is, of course, that many of us are living longer, uh, which is a good thing, uh, and many of us are able to take formerly uh, terminal illness and turn them into chronic, manageable disease. But for folks who are facing homelessness or, or poverty, managing a chronic disease in itself can be a bit of a death sentence. Absolutely. So the good news is, yes, we are living longer. And for many of us, the onset of uh, serious disabling diseases happens later. But we know that health is correlated with income. And we know that certain populations within the older population face greater risk of economic hardship. We know that African Americans and Latinos are more than twice as likely to be in poverty than whites. We know that women are more likely to be in poverty in old age than are men. Marital status is an important indicator of poverty. Married individuals, both men and women, are less likely to be in poverty in late life as compared to those who never married. And then again, as we age, as you go into your 70s, 80s, and 90s, the risk of being in poverty increases dramatically. The number of, of for, for lack of a better term, the lifestyle of this generation and, and the current generation where divorce was more likely uh, choosing to remain single, more likely children, adult children, moving from the home area across the country, out of the country, uh, can leave many folks as they, they enter their 50s, 60s, and 70s in a much more vulnerable position, say, than, than our grandparents were. That's right. Some have uh, fewer chil adult children to call upon. Um, there's also issues about do stepchildren feel the same uh, responsibility and bond to step-parents as they age? Now, uh, middle-aged adults may find they not only have one grandmother to support in old age, but they have a grandmother, a grandfather, a great-grandmother, a great-grandfather, a great-aunt, etc., so that there may be a greater number of older generation members to support. 
Um, I think, you know, when you raise the issue of the baby boomers, I think there's a real concern because it's not only they're going to be more in number, but we see um, evidence that a substantial proportion of baby boomers may be financially insecure in old age. Uh, The Employment Benefit Research Institute uh, did a retirement readiness rating, and they found nearly half of boomers between born between 1948 and 1954 are at risk of ha- not having sufficient funds to meet uh, their, an adequate retirement income and meet their uh, medical costs. I'm speaking with Judith Gagne. She's the chair of social research at Boston University School of Social Work, and we're talking about the risk factors uh, and poverty and homelessness among the elderly. You know, one of the um, common characteristics that I think uh, most elderly and seniors share is the stubbornness and independence. You know, I always felt blessed that my mom, who was her stubbornness and independence was a hallmark of her her character her entire life until she became a senior and she gave up her license. She would only drive within a one-block radius. She went into senior housing. Um, it, it is amazing, though, even in the most dire circumstances, you have folks who do, in some instances, would rather be on the street than be in some sort of homeless shelter, would rather live alone in, in, in poverty than uh, be able to reach out and connect with uh, a resource that may help them. You know, as uh, in the social worker field, I'm sure that this is a, a human condition rather than uh, something that's easily changed. But what kind of efforts can you make with, with folks who, who really view their independence as, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word entitlement, but, but as a barrier for them to get the help and support that they need? I think you raise a really important uh, point or issue. I think um, most older adults want to maintain independent as long as possible, and they want to maintain their dignity. One's home is a symbol of that. A home is more than a physical shelter. A home is about our identity. It's about our social identity. It's about our cultural identity. We look out out of our windows in our home, and we see a neighborhood that we've known. We see families that we've known. We've watched trees grow up in our neighborhood. Those are all things that explain who we are so that we know the vast majority of individuals want to stay in their home. Survey after survey has has shown this. 90% of individuals want to age we say age in place. They want to remain in their homes. And if they can't remain in their homes, they want to remain in the same community. And so I think the challenge we face is how do we create options for those individuals who want to remain and age in place in their home or their community? Um, I think, yes, there is the issue of pride and and um, the stigma of reaching out. On the other hand, I think oftentimes elders don't know about the resources that Mm -hmm. are available, and that's what I think we can do a better job about, helping them understand that there are options available. And the critical issue is how do we make these options available to all elders, regardless of their economic means? You know, one of the challenges, besides the obvious you know, moral implications of society. But one of the challenges that um, didn't strike me until I was uh, researching on this topic was the number of emergency room visits that elders in crisis, and I don't mean necessarily health crisis, uh, make. That if you are living uh, on the the borderline of poverty or are homeless, uh, a trip to the ER can be a warm bed obviously, and, and, a, and a warm meal, and that many of these ER visits could could be eliminated and moved to a different sort of resource. And that's a cost, uh, a financial cost that we all bear. Right. I think uh, those of us who are advocating for greater resources for this uh, to address elder homelessness make that case that hospital visits, emergency room visits, shelter stays, jails, long-term care institutions, nursing homes, these are more expensive solutions. And they're not the solutions that individuals want. So the challenge is, is how do we move towards that? Some of the issue of homelessness is about lack of affordable housing. Um, We know that those individuals, elders who are facing persistent poverty, market rate rents are not doable. 
getting the money together for a first, last, and a security deposit, an insurmountable obstacle to them. We know that there is not enough uh, publicly subsidized housing. Uh, I believe that there's recent data that suggest that for every um, elder apartment in public housing, there are nine elders waiting for a spot. Mm -hmm. Um, For... Uh, housing choice vouchers, or what we used to call Section 8 vouchers. It's my understanding that the wait is three years now. So what what are some of the steps that folks can take in order to um, either reach out to elder homelessness, elder folks who might be facing homelessness, or work with within the government structure? I mean, what, what can folks do mm-hmm. to, to work toward ending this problem? So First, um, I'm, I'm going to say there's no one magic bullet. We're talking about economic issues, we're talking about housing issues, and we're talking about health issues. And some of the problems we confront is that these three areas are three separate silos, whether we talk about federal policy or state policy. And the complexity of homelessness often involves all three. For some, it is simply about affordable housing. It is a brick-and-mortar solution. Yet what we realize is that for a significant uh, proportion of homeless elders, it's more complicated. It's not just poverty, but it may be uh, physical frailty. It may be mental illness. It may be substance abuse. It may be domestic violence. And for these individuals, a brick-and-mortar approach alone may not be sufficient. One of the uh, encouraging programs or areas of um, innovation has been around the creation of what we call service-enriched or supportive affordable housing. I'm very proud that here in, in Boston, we have an organization that been has provided leadership on this. Uh, there's an organization called Hearth, which used to be the mm-hmm. Committee to End Elder Homelessness, a group that was started by about a half a dozen women in their 70s and 80s who saw the problem of elder homelessness and wanted to do something about it. In the approximate, I believe, about two decades since they took on that issue, they have created, uh, bought seven large buildings in the Boston area and converted it to 137 service-enriched, affordable apartments. What that means is is that that housing is linked to health services, social services, and mental health services, that there's social workers, nurses, doctors, personal care attendants available, and that each individual um, has an individualized service plan. Uh, This enables individuals who may be on poverty have some other complicating factors get the support to be uh, housed, to be in a permanent, safe environment. I think it's important to stress the idea of permanent because these are people who are not cycling in and out of housing, that with these supports, they, they maintain themselves well and become socially connected to their community. It looks perhaps more expensive to have these service-enriched services with the housing, but I would just go back to your point. It's cheaper than emergency rooms. It's cheaper than shelters. It's cheaper than nursing homes, the other places that these individuals often do wind up. If a person is uh, on the streets, an elderly person is on the streets, is is there any kind of emergency intervention that can happen to, to move that person from the street into uh, some sort of even a short-term shelter, but uh, is there a, already a system in place that can help that person? There are services in place that reach out. Hearth, for example, has an outreach team that is connected to the shelters in uh, the city and specifically work with the elder clients, um, uh, residents of the shelters. I think the real challenge is Uh, So much of what we do is about intervention after the person who becomes homeless versus prevention. Mm -hmm. The irony, I say, of our uh, policies is to get priority for for public housing, one needs to bottom out and go to a shelter. So even if you're an older person who can be, we use the term couched up or... um, 
doubled up in an apartment with friends or families. You need to, to get priority for housing. You need to bottom out to go to a shelter to get priorities. That seems backwards to mm-hmm. me, that we should be able to intervene sooner. We need to get people who are on the risk before they get on the street. Well, it's all good information, uh, certainly opening the eyes to folks who may not be paying attention, especially those of us listening who, who understand that 50 may be the new elderly. So important <laughs> to keep that in mind. We appreciate your coming by. We've been talking about the elderly and the unique challenges that come with being older and poor. We've had Professor Judith Gagne. She's the chair of social research at Boston University School of Social Work. To learn more about this topic, please visit us at wgbh.org news. Coming up, we take stock of Occupy Boston's Spring Awakening. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Love our contributors. That means you. And Innuendo and Natick with the Hunter Douglas Celebration of Light Spring Event featuring the new cordless Light Rise Silhouette Shades as well as Duet Architella and Luminette Shading Systems. Innuendo.com. And Tivoli Audio. I think WGBH and all it represents, both in this market and really around the world, is important for our company to be associated with. Tom DeVesto, founder and CEO. Tivoli Audio has just started a sponsorship, and we already hear from people regularly that they hear the sponsorship on the radio, and it really gets to our customers. To learn more, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. I'm Lisa Mullins. Many Greeks have had enough of the austerity imposed by the European Union. They say it's time for Greece to go it alone. I would predict that if Greece does leave the euro, the, the next two years will be extremely difficult, but equally the rebound will be faster. Faster for Greece, that is. Not everybody is so optimistic. Greeks consider leaving the Eurozone next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. This summer, you'll turn to public radio to keep up with the Summer Olympics, the presidential election, or summer reading list, the Boston Red Sox, big summer movies with computer-created aliens, battles, and creatures. Help 89.7 get to the stories you care about and give a little bit more in support of a lot more coverage. To go above and beyond with an additional gift, just click the Donate button at WGBH.org. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. I'm Sue O'Connell, in for Callie Crossley, and we're talking about Occupy Boston with a focus on their mission and momentum. I'm joined by Chris Ferrone and Robert Forrent. Chris is a reporter for the Boston Phoenix and author of 99 Nights with the 99%. And Bob Ferrant is a professor of history and labor studies at UMass Lowell and the co-director of the Center for Family, Work, and Community. Welcome back to the two of you. Pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, Chris, I want to start with you with all the great writing uh, that you've done for the Phoenix and with your book on on the, on the 99%. Um, you know, I... I I'm fascinated by how the media sort of approaches Occupy, that it's almost without this firm structure of leadership and a press release and uh, that there's sort of flailing around about how to how to deal with it. And I don't feel like our attention right now is this spring awakening so much as it is just another progress report on what's happening with Occupy. Yeah, I think, uh, well, the first thing, this is kind of my, my big thing that I came up with on the way over here, just to put together all these things I've been thinking about, which is that it's really time to stop talking about, let's just take Occupy Boston, for example, as just Occupy Boston, as just this group that meets a couple of times a week and has these certain protests. Certainly there's not um, a camp right now at this juncture. 
but but what, to really look at is where it's spread, where it's uh, uh, affecting other communities, where it's taken hold. Uh, we were just talking about. You know, I spent some time with Occupy Cape Cod, and that is and. That, in addition to suburbs like Natick, Quincy, there are meetings, you know, the people energized by Occupy, people who really kind of came out of the woodwork, who haven't been involved, uh, politically active or active in progressive causes in years. So that's that's one way. But when we talk about Occupy Spring, uh, we talk about a lot of the more exciting, the things that you will see on the news now that Occupy is not a thing, something that's necessarily reported on daily. So, of course, you know, May Day was huge. Mm -hmm. And I was in New York for that. And there were 30,000 people in the street. That's a, That was the NYPD's estimate. This wasn't just Occupy exaggerating the numbers as they tend to do, as everybody tends mm -hmm. to do. And you know, that didn't get even, that didn't get very much play even in the New York City papers, let alone outside of that. So, but these are significant events. And, you know, we'll talk about NATO. There's, there, there are shareholders meetings across the country. And that's the bigger front. But other than that, it's really time to start talking about Occupy with the community organizations that were existing that they're now working with. You know, there's so much about about Occupy that reminds me of the early days of the gay rights movement. You know, that, 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 that there were times where you'd have a great number of people show up and there'd be nothing on the press about it. And you're like, well, really, how many people have to show up in order for it to be newsworthy? And also the diversity in opinion is so hard for... You know, I don't want to just hammer the media, but it, it, it is hard for people to digest that, uh, you know, Occupy has such a diversity. Um, you know, I was uh, and I, I, I tell the story every time we have an opportunity to talk about Occupy, how struck I was talking to a 70 plus year old gentleman at my storage facility back in the early kind of launch of Occupy about mm -hmm. how he would love to be there, but he doesn't know what to do. You know, uh -huh. he's not going to go camp out. You know, what can he do? And from your story about the folks down on Cape Cod, it really does, uh, you know, talk about how, how grown-ups, if you will, are able to find a way to um, uh, get involved in Occupy. There are people in, in Cape Cod, 70-year-olds uh, 70, 70 out there with walkers uh, helping with foreclosure eviction blockades. Uh, there's absolutely room for, for these kind of opportunities for everybody. And as far as the media, I'll say it's really interesting dynamic because it's in my book that early on, I was critical of the Occupy movement because they kept screaming media blackout, media blackout. And there wasn't a media blackout. They, in fact, and I had listed all the, you know, from the day, from day one, from before the pepper spray started flying, there was tons of coverage. There really was uh, from all your major outlets to your alternative press to your blogs like Daily Coast, to Keith Olbermann was covering it early on. Now, it's I'm kind of wondering, is it like the boy who cried wolf? Now the, now the coverage really is lacking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, personally, I you know, obviously I'm sympathetic to the movement, but I think it's important for even al alternative outlets like the Phoenix and you know, alt-weeklies across the country, for example, to cover this the way that we do. Because a lot of the internal media, the internal... Um, information dissemination and the Occupy newspapers, Occupied Wall Street Journal. In Boston, there's the Occupier. Those are very important. I have certainly read them and I know a lot of people do. But I think it's also important to kind of get this, you know, at least some, some, somewhat of a third party uh, voice in there. And it's, it's really missing right now. A lot of alt-weeklies are asleep on the job across the country, too. Bob, we would be remiss if we didn't, you know, look to history uh, for some touchstone moments on, on mistakes that were made in the past or, or applications, ideas that can be applied to, to the Occupy movement. What are some of the things that strike you right out of the box about what's happening today? Uh, and, and where does it resonate with things in the past? I think where... It resonates for me, and I was thinking about this driving uh, on the way in because I spent the morning in, in Lawrence at the exhibit for the Bread and Roses strike. I've thought a lot about over the last few months that strike, but also sort of the continuum of labor and labor struggles. And where labor was at its high points in, I think at least in U.S. history, uh, were the moments where linkages were made between, for lack of a better term, social movements and labor issues were hooked together. So, for example, in the large mass movement to try to push for the eight-hour day in the early 1880s, culminating in 1886 in Haymarket Square, uh, that was a really broad-based movement to attack this question of how long the workday was, how dangerous work was, and it was something that resonated not just amongst workers in the shop, but it was an issue that was organized in this really broad-based way, uh, as well sort of pushing a little bit forward into the late 1880s 
1890s, there were strong linkages between farmers and laborers in the Populist Party, which was a political party, which ran candidates. And in its platform, it, it identified labor issues, issues around minimum wages, around safety at work, around the length of the workday, but it also talked about reforming capitalism. This had been the period of great railroad expansion and the so-called robber barons, which we read about in our history books, and they were gouging farmers uh, unmercifully and moving their freight. And by farmers and laborers sort of uniting, this created this very broad-based movement that that had some electoral success uh, at the congressional level and definitely at the state level. And then sort of Coming forward a bit more, the Triangle Fire in New York City in nineteen in March of nineteen eleven, and then the Bread and Roses strike, those two sort of catapult this question of workers, communities, safe work, decent wages, childcare, all sorts of issues related to gender. All they all get sort of put in this stew pot again, and that creates for a time a really powerful movement as well. So when I think of Occupy, I sort of see that. Um, sort of, I don't, gestalt or whatever you want yeah. to call it. There's something going on in the air, and that's really exciting. Um, as somebody who participated in the anti-war movement when I was a student in Boston in the 60s, and labor was, um, if not on passive, um, oftentimes, sometimes would actually be very aggressive against that broad-based social movement. We don't see that now, and that's very exciting. You know, it's always easy from um current standpoint to look back and say, you know, everything went very smoothly. You know, I, I love the the books that came out recently on the civil rights movement of the 60s, you know, how Martin Luther King almost didn't get to speak, how there was infighting, you know, and it's, it's we don't have the opportunity necessarily to learn those things. But, you know, what's happening with Occupy is really not that different in terms of uh, its diversity and its messiness, if you will, of every other uh, rights movement we've ever had. Yeah, I mean, the strike in Lawrence, I mean, it's fascinating because doing the research that we've been doing, I mean, there were 30 nationalities living in Lawrence, and there were that many languages, if not more, religions, churches, foodways, whatever. So that was pretty messy, but people figured out a way. We were talking before we came in, and I mean, the Lawrence strikers did the human microphone before the human microphone, and mic check before mic check, because they simultaneously translated all their meetings into all of these languages, because they fully understood the only way this was going to go forward was going to be to create this broad-based solidarity. They learned each other's songs. It was called the singing strike because people were marching all over creation in downtown Lawrence singing at the top of their lungs somebody else's song in Italian or Polish or Yiddish or what have you. And that really built up the momentum. And so the times that I was downtown in Boston to visit, to, to be at Occupy or participate in rallies, I sort of saw that same, you know, that same kind of an energy, which is really, again, something very positive to take away. Chris, a lot of um, progressives I've, I've talked to, Dem- Democrats, uh, are concerned about the upcoming uh, convention in, in, in Philadelphia and what Occupy may or may not do around the convention and how that may or may not affect uh, the re-election of President Obama. And, you know, it's, it's, it, many folks are pointing, of course, to some uh, to Chicago and and some of the uh, the riots that happened there back in the day. Do you have any feeling about about what the the Occupy people on the street? I don't mean actually in the street, but on the ground are are planning or thinking about in terms of their convention act activities. You mean for Charlotte? Yeah, I'm or, sorry. Did I say? Well, Charlotte? Can, yeah. there, there is a um, and on July 4th there is an Occupy right, thing, right. Uh, in in Philadelphia you, as well. Yes. As far as Charlotte, uh, to be honest, you know, I, I'm really looking at this kind of step by step. NATO okay. would be the next big thing. And I, you're going to NATO. I, I am You're going to NATO, and we could wrap about minutes. that. Yeah, just a couple minutes. But I, I will say that, really, this is I, if there's ever been anything that's going to prove to conservatives who really dislike Occupy that they really are not in the bag for Barack Obama <laughs> or for his campaign or for his administration. Charlotte's going to be the the test of that because, of course, it's it wasn't enough that you know the first. The first office that they shut down in Iowa was an Obama campaign office, you know, not not a Republicans. But but really, I think, you know, they, they there is a, and I've said this over and over. There really is a just a serious disdain for electoral politics across the Occupy spectrum. I don't see that changing very much. A lot of the things they stand for, a lot of the things they stand against, a lot of things that they stand against really, um, you know, and I think NATO would be um, a, a per, an, very is very emblematic of a lot of things that they stand against are what really the Democratic administration right now is, is embracing. 
Um, what are some of the things that, you know, when, when we talk about Occupy uh, in real life, not on the radio, mm-hmm. um, you know, folks have a very different, everyone has a different idea of what's happening. You know, you get your basic, I can't believe the bank is charging me these fees mm-hmm. to foreclosure, to CEO payment. What, if you had to give the elevator pitch, if you mm-hmm. will, of yeah. what Occupy nationally uh, it. it it stands for and is looking to change. What 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 would a summation of that be? To move power back to to um, to the people, and one very concrete way that they're doing this, and this has really been effective. And there's been an effort to do this in Boston by say uh, City Council Arroyo for a while, Felix Arroyo, Felix Arroyo. But they are you know con- getting municipalities, getting small towns, and even cities to move money out of the big banks and put it into community banks and credit unions or wherever they can that lend back to the community. It's a very basic concept. It's a concept that I can't find one conservative who will disagree with me that this is something that should be done, um, especially at the, in Boston. And, um, you know, that's that's an example of really trying to – just trying to really sp- spread that out to – to break down the power structure as it is right now, and that's a, that's a that's just one of many ways. Of course, the, it's still a protest movement in many regards, but there are people working behind the scenes. And another example I would give is an Occupy Cape Cod, and a lot of the smaller suburban occupiers are doing this. Is actually doing this paperwork that it takes to prevent these foreclosures. I mean, this is a nightmare. And even and furthermore, to 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 help people before they're in the position that they're in foreclosures. And th- this really is a war in itself against the banks. I mean, if anybody saw the paperwork that gets thrown at individuals who are trying to save, rescue their own homes, it's, it's almost undoable. Well, I went through a short sale. I mean, and okay. I know also, you know, as we were talking earlier about homelessness with the elderly, in order to get to a position where you can negotiate, you have to actually be as far in default as you can be, which is completely it's, counterintuitive to what, what you believe. So, and, and I often think as a... You know, a white woman, college educated, where English was my first language. If I can't do this, I can't imagine how difficult it is uh, for someone who wasn't as, you know, as lucky as I was to have the entitlements that I have. Which is why this, which is why it's so important that this is a, a, a first and foremost a great support structure for a lot of people and resources that resources are available to them now that they just didn't even know existed. Well, we're going to continue the conversation. We're going to take a quick break here. I'm Sue O'Connell. I'm in for Callie Crossley. And of course, we're talking about Occupy Spring with Boston Phoenix Chris Farone and Professor Robert Farrant. He teaches history and labor studies at UMass Lowell. The conversation continues at 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and Grogan and Company Fine Art Auctioneers, featuring paintings, furniture, decorations, and oriental carpets in their May 20th auction. To view the illustrated online catalog, you may visit grogancio.com. And Lincoln, introducing the new 2013 Lincoln MKS with available 16-speaker THX surround sound and independent suspension. More at lincoln.com. Lincoln, now it gets interesting and Orchard Cove, where their substantial updates are now complete. You can see how the new face of this independent senior community in Canton is transforming residents' lives. You can schedule a tour online at orchardcovelive.org. On the next Fresh Air, journalist Florence Williams talks about breasts, why they're prone to cancer, why children are developing breasts at an earlier age, and why breast milk may have toxins. She sent her own breast milk to a lab, and they found... High to average levels of flame retardants, trace amounts of pesticides, dioxin, and a jet fuel ingredient. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. 
For 47 years now, the WGBH Spring Auction has been your chance to pick up some amazing deals. Welcome, welcome at last, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Channel 2 Auction. This year, you can bid on a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealers. Bigger and better than ever. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. If you have stamina and strong eyesight, stay with us. Bid high, bid often, but hurry. The Spring Auction ends May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. Meetings of the WGBH Board of Trustees, the Community Advisory Board, and their respective committees are open to the public. Information about meeting dates, times, and places can be found online at wgbh.org meetings. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. I'm Sue O'Connell sitting in for Callie, and if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Occupy Spring, looking at where the movement is today. I'm joined by Chris Farone and Robert Fort. Chris is a reporter for the Boston Phoenix and author of 99 Ninths with the 99%, and Bob Fort is a professor of history and labor studies at UMass Lowell and co-director of the Center for Family Work and Community. Bob, I want to um, talk a little bit about the, the, the political action and structure of Occupy or, or their uh, rejection of the existing political structure as a way to make change. Is there any um, any lesson we can learn from that from the past? You know, it, from from this perspective, it seems like everyone has always had a plan uh, to to change at some point by by election and, and by political movement. But I'm sure that isn't always true. Yeah, I mean, we can't forget that women um, coming into the early 20th century dealing with workplace issues, women didn't have the right to vote. So they couldn't so there's obviously a suffrage movement where people are trying to react to the system in that way to get the vote. But at the same time, the abolitionist movement, um, you know, had heavy involvement in leadership from women. The, the populist movement I was referring to for, before had, you know, major, you know, major, major people. One of the main speakers for the populist movement was a woman who, whose slogan was raise less corn and more hell. Um, and so people were, um, were, again, the example of Lawrence is a good one, experimenting with all sorts of tactics. The good thing to think about here is this example of foreclosures, where in the 1930s, people weren't trying to figure out how to reform the political system or create a finance control committee or whatever um, is happening in Washington. They would basically disrupt sales of farms. They wouldn't let a banker get anywhere near a farm if somebody couldn't make a payment. Or they would mob the farm. The banker would come to try to mortgage off the farm. It would all be planned already. One person would bid a dollar, and then nobody else would bid a penny. And now it's a legal auction. Somebody would pay the banker a dollar, and now the farmer would get back their farm for a buck. And they did this without Facebook. They did this without <laughs> Facebook, without Twitter. Right, that's what I mean. And so, yeah. you know, this the, the, the sort of power of that link in the community was really, you know, something to behold. I mean, bankers would be put in, you know, in the trunk of somebody's car and driven to the county line and told not to come back again. The idea that they somehow could come in and take away the family farm was just not the stuff of what people, and these are places now that we think of as the, you know, as the, as the conservative states. I mean, this was happening in Texas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Dakota, the middle of the country during this period, during the late 19th century and the mid 20th century was some of the most radical part of the country by far. They were much more clever and creative and much less interested in reform or compromise or voting something. They, were, they believed in direct action, and they, they did it. Chris, there's a lot of anecdotal stories of folks on the ground here at Occupy Boston dealing with the, uh, the police officers who were saying to them off the record, look, I know what you're doing. We're, we're supporting you. And, and, and the influx of the labor support, even if it's just lip service at this point, does, does seem to be moving forward in terms of uh, solidifying an Occupy ideal. Well, yeah, first I just want to say that, whereas I said, you know, they're not working uh, on Barack Obama's campaign. They are not, uh, Occupy is not unifying behind one or even several candidates. That doesn't mean they're not working in the in in politics mm -hmm. at all. I mean, in Massachusetts, they've they really have thrown a lot of weight behind uh, really running up against some of the irresponsible legislation that's been uh, on the table at the state house. Three strikes, stand your ground, 
they they had a temporary encampment outside of the state house because of MBTA service mm-hmm. cuts and fare hikes. So you know it's a, it's a it's different. But it's direct action, but it's absolutely aimed. You know, di- square at the state house, not just at the financial sector, but even, of course, that plays into a lot of this. Right. And there are people who, who believe in the Occupy ideas who are more political and who are forwarding that idea. Again, it's not just one label you can put on, on the group. Right. And as far as the relationship with organized labor, I, I would say that a lot of it was superficial, certainly started as superficial. Some of the early, you know, press conferences between City Life Vita Urbana and Occupy Boston. Uh, but but now, you know, you go to Occupy meetings and it's kind of like it's one and the same. I've been covering progressive causes in Boston for about 10 years. And, you know, this is a lot of the same characters, but now they're kind of all together. Whereas when I used to see them all together, it would be kind of like one person handing out flyers for their march the next week. At the you know at the they would be handing out their anti Iraq War flyer at the Women's March the week before. Now it's really a, a bigger tent. But I would argue that they're not uh, really that superficial. A lot of these connections are real. Mass Uniting was out this morning, uh, protesting State Street, and uh, I'm not sure I wasn't able to be there. But my guess is there were plenty of Occupy uh, Occupy Boston people there. Um, this is just this is what the front is. That's what it, it's what it's grown into. They've realized, uh, ironically, the biggest. Um, the biggest criticism of Occupy from the other side, that it's, you know, so nebulous and that there are so many groups here, really is is the strength, I, I believe, moving forward. And there, there'll be individual anarch, uh, anarchist-minded people that really kind of reject organized labor as a whole. And that's just not the general sentiment. I think, by and large, people really are looking to work with any groups that have the same mindset, you know, People first. I misspoke uh, earlier about the uh, the DNC and, and got confused with the Philadelphia July Fourth action that's happening, um, where Occupy is is going to really take the the birth of our nation for a moment to uh, make a point. You want to talk a little bit about some of the, uh, for lack of a better term, events that are coming up uh, in the Occupy Spring and Summer. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, so um, I'll, and I'll finish off with NATO, yeah. which is right away. But you know, so you're going to see July Fourth should be interesting. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where relations are now, but they really were kind of like two Occupy camps that were having different congresses, if you will, and and actions leading up to that. My prediction is that they will synthesize um, at, at, in the approach to the first week of July, and you know, hopefully work together. And but of course, you're going to see your major rallies at uh, at the DNC in in Charlotte and at the Republican National Convention in Tampa. Um, then, but most uh, May Day was huge. I can't stress that enough. It really was a big event in New York, and also a, a great symbol of where the how far the movements come with their work with organized labor. I mean, there were dozens of of groups that were involved with that action, and it it, it went off pretty smoothly. I would say there were sure there were some arrests, but really, uh, it was it was a major front for Occupy, and and it demonstrated that they can work with these organizations and labor unions. Uh, and then of course NATO, which is this week, which is kind of its own beast altogether. It's it, it's it's not as it's it's not outside of the Occupy wheelhouse like a lot of people think they are. Uh, I was just in Chicago. There's a chapter on Chicago in my book. Chicago has 100,000 foreclosed homes. The South Side is in shambles. Kids are shooting each other at alarming rates. Uh, th- there are food deserts everywhere. Wealth disparity, homelessness, hopelessness, and you know, people are outraged to see NATO, which is kind of a breathing symbol of this military-industrial complex that a lot of people, myself included, think is largely responsible for a lot of the problems in this country. People are kind of sick to their stomach to see this paraded in front of them. And that, and the expectations that there are going to be about 60,000 people there. Are they all Occupy people? Of course not necessarily. Uh, people, There will be many people, my guess, is from across the country who have been activated for years to, um, to, to pursue this sort of action. But Occupy is definitely the largest banner that people are organizing from behind. You know, Bob, it, it's funny. I keep reading, and I, I read in one of Chris's stories at the Boston Phoenix, but I've read it elsewhere where where folks who are at a certain age who are involved in Occupy are clear to say they're not hippies, which as if the hippies didn't do anything, you know, as if like the, the riots and the uh, protests of the 60s had no effect. I don't want to be a hippie, you know, but, um, you know, there there is a certain maturity of uh I don't know, a, 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 a larger, a long-term view that just comes with age. And I'm just wondering if, if you see, uh, you know, if you were able to give some advice, uh, what would your advice be to the, to, to the Occupy movement at large? Well, one thing which is really fascinating about the thing July 4th in Philadelphia is that in 1976, I helped organize uh, 
I thought you were going to say 17. Something, no, no, thanks a lot. <laughs> wow, I'm not coming back. Um, in, 19, in 1976, we organized a big rally and protest in Philadelphia called the Bicentennial Without Colonies, which was focused on Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican independence and a whole broad cross-section of issues. And so it's interesting to hear, you know, now that's going to happen again. I think, I mean, what what I think is that people have to experiment with strategies and tactics. There's not, a, there's not a way to do this. There's not, and I think that's sometimes the, the media's frustration. It's like they want, they want somebody to tell them what they're going to, what, what, whoever the we is, what, what we are going to do so that they can write it and meet a deadline. And that's not going to happen. This is a broad-based social movement and it's like an amoeba in, or like one of those crazy lamps, lava lamps. It's going to kind of go. And that's just the way it is. And it, it's not so easy to rein something like that in. I think you can learn a lot from, from the history of what, what, where big movements like this sort of foundered in the past. And they foundered in the past because ultimately at some point a high degree of sectarianism sort of reared its ugly head and a group of people from within began to think they had all the answers. And the only way to do this was the way they wanted it to be done. That happened a lot when I lived in Boston with the anti-war movement, with the civil rights work in Boston and other things that I had been involved in while I was a student. And I would say, um, if it's at all possible, when that begins to rear its ugly head, you know, sort of do the human microphone and like hiss at those people because there's not a one way. And I think the thing that would turn the labor movement off the most in terms of building this broader based coalition would be for people, sort of another lesson here, would be for people to show some level of disdain for people who actually punch a time clock and go to work every day. And I think that that, that really, that had its its insidious sort of stranglehold in the uh, in the anti-war movement in the in the in the 60s and the 70s, and that has to be prevented at all costs as well. Because either all boats rise, or we're just gonna you know we're well, gonna you know be it's out interesting. I want you know I see that from a different perspective. I mean I've heard a lot of um, folks who I would I would imagine to be and not imagine know to be the 99 percent who seem still to be critical of those protesting that they don't have jobs. You know, that if, if these these folks occupying and protesting would just go out and get a job, everything would be okay, you know. And it's sort of like the reverse of how it was in the 60s, you know, where you having a job would be the problem. And I'm wondering, Chris, you know, we were talking during the break uh, about this vast wasteland, and you mentioned it in terms of describing Chicago, you know, of, of places where homes are foreclosed, where homes have lost value, where... What you who used to be in the middle class, these folks are now living in fear, you know, and they're afraid to let go of what they have. They're afraid that they're going to lose what they have. And that fear sort of prevents them from 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 stepping out and becoming radicalized, if I if I could, for a moment. I mean, what's the tipping point of really finding a good coalition of 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 a number of you know, what 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 has to happen for more mainstream people to take Whatever action it is that they want to take, whether it just be transferring to a local bank. I well, I I, I, I first of all, I guess to get foreclosed on would yeah. be, would be one thing, or to have someone close to your family. But you know, interestingly enough, when I was in Chicago last, this was I was there just as some of the community groups from the South Side were starting to uh, work on foreclosures and to really take this head on. I mean, they they they, they I was brought to an entire block on the West Side that there was not a single family. Uh, living in any of the homes. Uh, one of the most depressing scenes uh, I've, I've ever lived through on the beat. And I was there when some of these community groups were, were teaming up with Occupy Chicago, from who was mostly meeting downtown in Grant Park, in the loop, as they say. And this was all new to a lot of them. And they, this was a, it was a natural team. It was a natural, uh, natural teamwork is what ensued from there. They really saw that th- th- this these communities were struggling at a just an astronomical number of uh, suffering from an astronomical number of foreclosures that were really, and this is kind of the heart of everything they've been against. And the other thing I'll say is like, as far as like Chicago and the real argument against a lot of this stuff, whether it's NATO or, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And this is what the media really always wants the easy answer for. But the answer is in that they're asking them. I mean, would, would the local, say even the local media, the morning television news in Illinois, be covering NATO? No, they'd be sitting on the couch talking about American Idol if there weren't 60,000 people in the streets. Already there are thousands of people, and it's major news. Every Chicago network, and now you're seeing it nationally. So I think the the answer is right there. That's why people are out in the street. And you're right. There's not, there's not one way to do this. 
but they're trying a lot of these different things. You know, and uh, I really think that you know now that Occupy, especially, there's a great article in the Village Voice a couple of weeks ago about how all the pe- a lot of these people, middle class people, my age in their 30s, who spent time at Rikers Island because they were arrested during Occupy. Well, they were well when they were there, they were saying seeing. The disparity in treatment between people, you know, who can afford even a couple hundred dollars for bail, like them, and people who couldn't. And then the voice kind of looked into, and and their organization that looked into the numbers of, you know, all right, so now who ends up in jail that can afford bail and who can't? So all the, a lot of these issues they're coming up, they're they're being unearthed, and and no matter what, you just can't deny the Occupy movement that they've really put a lot of this stuff from homelessness and drug abuse to. Um, to police brutality, just out there in front for everybody to see. You know, Bob, we're wrapping up, but on, on the heels of a generation that was somewhat seen coddled and 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 didn't have a lot to do and didn't have a lot of hardship, there really is, at, at the least, this generation coming forth through Occupy is going to be a lot more aware and a lot more in touch with the challenges that our country has for everyone. It's, you know, they're not just going to be living in the gated community that they might have grown up in. They're really going to experience um, some of the hardship that Americans have. Yeah. And my students say to me, we did everything we were supposed to do. We were supposed to go to college and we were supposed to get a degree and then we were supposed to get a job. And that that was sort of what we were told from the time we can remember. We've done all that. We now have a eighty-five dollars or $100,000 worth of debt. We see Congress powerless to try to figure out what's going to happen to that interest rate, and we can't find a job. So yeah, maybe we ought to look at what those Occupy folks are saying, because maybe there's something in it um, that that helps us understand why, when we did everything the right way, the same as some a working class person who's foreclosed upon. the home, Your house is supposed to be the American dream, and here comes this anonymous force in and yanks it out from under you and you're left with, right? So you can go one of two ways. You can come become despondent, you know, you know, just sort of sick inside and, and withdraw. Or you can say, wait, maybe what some of those guys and, and women over there are saying in the Occupy movement, it actually might make some sense. And so I think that's what's going what's gonna to be interesting is how this is going to grow. This is not going to, I can't imagine this going away because the economy is not getting better anytime soon. And that, uh, that will be a conversation that we will continue to have. We thank both of you for your attention. We've been talking about the Occupy movement. Chris Ferrone and Robert Farrant. Chris has some great stuff over at the Boston Phoenix. Uh, his book is 99 Nights with the 99%, a must-read. Bob Ferrant is the professor of history and labor studies at UMass Lowell and is the co-director of the Center for Family, Work, and Community. I'm Sue O'Connell. I've been in for Callie Crossley. I'll be back tomorrow to talk about Little League and what it means for our inner-city youth. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.